Well, if you are new with us at Freedom, one of the things we typically do is we teach through books of the Bible. And we normally go verse by verse through uh, either a character study or a, or a book as a whole and just walk through it verse by verse so that we can understand the context, we can understand the, the purpose of the author writing that book uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so currently we are in the book of Mark. And we've been walking through the bar, book of Mark for uh, actually about a year now and uh, with a couple of pauses in between. But uh, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. So we're coming towards the end of the book of Mark, and this is a series that we're titling Passion, the one week that changed everything. And this is Wednesday of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus's life before his crucifixion. And when we get to where today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, and when we get to Mark chapter 14, the mood of Mark's gospel begins to dramatically shift. And so from now on in Mark's gospel, the focus is going to be the crucifixion of the Messiah. So everything now in Mark's gospel is going to be leading us to Good Friday. It's going to be leading us to the crucifixion of our Savior. And as we read this text this morning, here's what you're going to discover and what you're going to see. We're going to see that the end is near. You're going to get this feeling like the end is coming to to a close. Like, Jesus knows it. Judas and the Sanhedrin begin to plot it. And this unnamed woman anoints Jesus for it. So let's pick up in Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, and so that is the Sanhedrin, for those of you who are wondering, the chief priests and the scribes, that is a group called the Sanhedrin, which were kind of the, the religious ruling class of Israel. They were under Roman oppression, but they were kind of the rulers in the, in the religious world, in the, in the temple, and that type of thing. So you have the chief priests and the scribes, and they're seeking how to arrest him, but look at this, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. They were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
So here in this passage of Scripture, these first 11 verses of Mark really give us a contrast of four responses to Jesus. Because here's the reality. Every single one of us must respond to Jesus. There's no way out of responding to Jesus. You're going to respond to him in, in, in one of many different ways. None of us can, can respond, even if you choose to ignore Jesus. You're still responding to him, right? And so we all have a response to Jesus. And in this text, we actually see four responses to Jesus contrasted against one another. Three of them serves as, serve as warnings for us to avoid. And one of them serves as a model for us to emulate. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at these four different responses. The first one we're going to start with is the hostility of the religious leaders. The hostility of the religious leaders. Look in verse 1. And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's stop right there just for a second. What is happening is this is the setting, this scene is during this celebration this feast that the jewish people would celebrate called passover and unleavened bread and this was a celebration of god's miraculous deliverance of the people of israel out of the land of egypt you can read about it in exodus 12 and so they're in the middle of the celebration which meant pilgrims from all over jewish pilgrims from all over would travel to jerusalem so the jerusalem would swell to three, four times its normal population, sometimes even more. And so you have all these people traveling to Jerusalem during this, this feast. And this Jewish Independence Day was, was, what was included in that was this slaughter of a Passover lamb who 1,400 years ago, when the Jews slaughtered their first Passover lamb in Egypt and spread its blood on their doorposts, they were passed over by the death angels, saving the lives of their firstborn children. So that's the context. That's the, the setting. And then what does it say? It says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So get, the, get this. These religious leaders... The Sanhedrin is seeking a way in order to kill Jesus. They're, they're trying to do so in secret so that they don't upset the crowd. Why? Because the crowd liked Jesus. I mean, just a few days before, what did they do? They ushered him into the city of Jerusalem, waving palms and shouting, Hosanna. He who comes in the name of the Lord. So what, what they're doing, they're saying, look, we can't anger the crowd. But why were the Sanhedrin, why were the religious leaders so angry? So upset with Jesus. And here's the reason. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. You see, they had this, this aura about them. They had this persona that they were righteous, godly, spiritual men. And over and over and over again, Jesus exposes them as religious phonies. That ticked them off, folks. They were so mad that these religious leaders were willing to break, I believe, one of the commandments, if I'm not mistaken. One of the top ten, right? One of God's top ten. They're like, yeah, we're breaking. Let's kill him. That's how mad they were. That's how upset they were. And over and over again, they have tried to get rid of Jesus, and every one of their attempts have failed. They've tried to discredit him. They've tried to defame him. 
And once they realize that there's nothing they can do to defeat him, they choose to murder him. That's hostility. See, the, these religious folks, they hated Jesus so much that if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, in our study of Mark, that is when they set their hearts towards murdering him, towards killing him. But these guys are such cowards. Why? Because they, they say, we can't do it now because we're afraid of the crowd. We're afraid of the people. So we can't, we can't do what we want to do now. We have to wait till after the Passover celebration. That was their intention. They're waiting for this opportunity. They're waiting in secrecy in order to take Jesus out. Now, the fact that you're here this morning or watching online probably means you don't fit into this category. Although you could. Because these were religious leaders. These were people who put on this... this picture of piety, but yet they were phonies. But hostility towards Jesus looks very similar than it did as it did back then. Because we can still be hostile towards Jesus today. Now it comes in the obvious uh, opportunities. Those people that, that persecute Christians, you, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but throughout the world, uh, persecution is rampant among followers of Christ. And that's obviously hostility towards Jesus. There's, there's hostility towards Jesus when people hate the church. When they look at Christians and they take one instance from, from a Christian who's not necessarily walking with Jesus, they say, well, all of you are hypocrites. That's hostility towards Christ. I think the most prevalent hostility towards Jesus is when we assassinate the biblical Jesus. And that happens in churches all the time where we take this Jesus and talk about this Jesus that is not seen in the Bible. That's why we have to understand God's word. That's why we have to study God's word so that we know who Jesus is so that we can preach and teach a Jesus that is found in scripture and not one that we make up in our own minds. And so there's this hostility towards Jesus, but let's look at the second response, and that is the betrayal of Judas. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip all the way down to the end of this text to verse 10. And we're going to look at the betrayal of Judas. And verse 10 says, Then Judas, or it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. Now, when they heard it, they were exceedingly glad. They were excited. The chief priest of Sanhedrin, like, Woohoo, we got him now. We got one of his own. And he's going to betray him. And they promised to pay him. And then it says this, And then he, that's Judas, sought for an opportunity to betray him. So Judas betrays Jesus. In this moment, Judas has solved the Sanhedrin's problem in verses 1 and 2. They were looking for a way to do it secretly. Judas comes to him and says, hey, I've got the way. Let's betray him. But notice what Judas does. He does it out of his own will. Judas willfully, intentionally, purposefully betrayed Jesus Christ. He is responsible for it. He will be held accountable for it. And it says that he was looking for the right opportunity to betray him. He was looking for the right moment. He willfully, intentionally decided to hand Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. 
But notice what Mark points out. Mark points out that Judas was one of the twelve. Think about that. Judas had heard every sermon that Jesus ever preached. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pure of heart. He heard that sermon. He was there when Jesus preached and gave us the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judas was sitting right there. He heard it with his own ear. He was there when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. He was there when Jesus delivered the the story of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son. He was there in all of those moments. He was there when Jesus said, hey guys, you need to turn the other cheek. Judas heard all of that. He heard every bit of it. But not only that, he also observed every miracle that Jesus performed. Think about this. Judas was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Saw it with his own eyes. Judas was there when Jesus calmed the storm on the boat. Judas was there when the blind were given sight, when the lame were allowed to walk, when the deaf were able to hear. Judas was there. He saw all of it. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave. He was there for all of it. But here's the most terrifying part of Judas's life, being one of the twelve. Judas was sent out with the other disciples and other followers of Christ to do the work of the kingdom. And he did it. And Mark tells us earlier in this book, he says that they went out and they cast out demons and they healed people and judas was a part of it he experienced it he went out and did the work of christ spreading the word of the gospel of the kingdom to others judas was involved in all of that he heard the words of jesus he watched the miracles of jesus he even performed the work of jesus yet judas rejected god's work in his own heart Now, here's what I want you to understand. That betrayal does not come from an enemy. See, the religious leaders were hostile. They were enemies of Jesus. But betrayal, that comes from a friend. You can be around Jesus and not follow him. You can attend church every week and not know him. This should be a warning to us to examine our own hearts and say, okay, am I hearing sermons about Jesus? Am I watching Jesus work in the lives of others? Am I I even doing the work? Am I serving in the kingdom? Am I serving serving in the church and, and, and and not knowing him? That's who Judas was. But betraying someone is not the same as being their enemy. You see, the essence of betrayal is that you have to show affection towards someone that you're betraying. That's the essence of betrayal. Betrayal doesn't happen to someone unless they're close to you. 
Betrayal doesn't happen unless someone that you love and show affection for. And Judas had loved and shown affection for Jesus, and yet he was betraying him. See, betrayal must come from a friend. If you don't know what betrayal is, a betrayal betrayal is someone who or betrayer is someone who embraces you with one arm and stabs you in the back with the other. And that's exactly what Judas did. Now don't miss this truth. The greatest betrayers of Christ today, the greatest betrayers of Christ today are still those who profess to be his friends. Those that betray Jesus today are those that are professing to be his friends today. See, you can, and I, you and I can be affectionate towards Jesus and ultimately be betraying him. But here's what I don't believe. I don't believe for a moment that Judas just woke up one day and said, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to betray Jesus Christ. Like, I don't think he said that at all. I think what happened, unfortunately, was there was this very slow progress of decline in Judas's life over those three years with Jesus to the point where he was willing to betray him. And I believe it all stems from Judas's secret sin. See, Judas was, we know that he was the money carrier for all the disciples. He was in charge of the money. And I believe greed and covetedness crept into his heart. And over time, over time, that decline, that inward decline in his own heart got him to the point where he was willing to betray Christ. It didn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen overnight for any of us. It doesn't happen overnight for any of us. See, the reality is there are many people that won't surrender their lives to Christ because they won't let go of their secret sin. There are many people within the church that aren't followers of Christ because they want to hold on to some secret sin. Listen, (coughs) excuse me. We cannot reach out to God with one arm and hold on to our secret sin with the other. It just doesn't work that way. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that that we have to clean up our lives before coming to Christ. That's not what I'm saying at all. The reality is none of us can. I'm not saying that repentance is a result of us of us overcoming sin. That's not that's not what it that's not what repentance means at all. I'm not saying that that we can overcome sin without the power of God. We can't. That's not what I'm saying at all. Repentance is not getting your life together and then coming to Jesus. No, what repentance is, is a change of mind about your sin. It is agreeing with God about the sin in our lives and saying, yes, I understand the damage it is doing. Yes, I understand that it is, it is against you, God, and being willing to allow Him to change you through His power, not your own. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't trying to clean up your act, but I think so, so often we think, well, I can't come to God because I, I have to get right first. I have to change my life first. That's not the way it works. But I think that holds so many people back, and they continue to betray Jesus over and over again. And I think this works in the lives of unbelievers. But listen, church, I also think this works in the lives of believers. You can be a follower of Christ and betray Him just the same. And I think there are times where we willfully look for ways to betray Jesus. 
we do so by holding on to secret sin. Because here's the reality. If you and I are dabbling in sin as followers of Christ, if we're dabbling in these secret sins, eventually it's going to cut us off from God. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be lost forever. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that if we don't get to a point of repentance, if we don't get a point of turning back to Him, it is going to ruin us spiritually. And we're going to be so far from God that we're not going to be able to hear His voice. And I think that's what happened to Judas. And I think that's what led to his betrayal. J.C. Ryle said many years ago, Open sin has killed its thousands, but secret sin its tens of thousands. And how many times in our own lives does our secret sin eventually make it out publicly? Then all heck breaks loose, doesn't it? And then we've got ruined relationships, not only with God, but with others. We've lost our reputation. We've blown it. But here's the beauty that we're going to see is that through Christ, he can restore all that. Through Christ, he can redeem all of that. But we have to be willing to come to him in repentance. And we have to be we have to stop being willing to sell out Jesus just like Judas did. So there's a third. A third response to Jesus. So you have the hostility of these religious leaders. You have the betrayal of one of Jesus's close friends. And then you have this moderation of these dinner guests. Look what happens in verse three. So the the scene shifts and he says, Jesus is in Bethany. He's in the house of Simon the leper. Now, the fact that Simon the leper is having a dinner party means and shows that he has been healed by Jesus. Because lepers were not allowed by the Mosaic law to have dinner parties. I mean, lepers were not allowed to be hanging out with anybody. And so the fact that he's got some folks over, he's got his rec tech burning, he's getting ready for some dinner. Like, this is a big deal. This man has been healed by Jesus, which probably means, or possibly means, that this could be a celebration. This could be a thing, an appreciation dinner even for Jesus. So he's in Bethany, he's, he's being celebrated, and what I love about this is this whole crowd at this party is pro-Jesus. They're like, yay, Jesus, we love Jesus. This is his disciples, this is his followers. Jesus, Simon has allowed Jesus to get away from the, from the turmoil and the, and the troubles in Jerusalem to go in Bethany, hang out with some of his closest friends. And this is a good day. This is a great day. Jesus is able to, to get away from all that. And what happens is while he's reclining at the table, this woman walks in, this unnamed woman walks in with an alabaster flask. She breaks the flask of pure nard, which nard was a, was a, was a beautifully fragrant, uh, fragranted uh, perfume that came from a plant that was only found in India. Incredibly expensive. In fact, Scripture says that it was worth a year's wages. If we were to kind of make the equivalent of today, we're talking somewhere between twenty and forty thousand dollars is what it would cost to get this perfume. Now she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' head. In fact, John, I believe John twelve says that she she pours it over Jesus' head and she wipes his head and his feet with her tears and with her hair. So this is an incredibly beautiful picture of extravagant devotion of extravagant worship. And look 
what those that are present say. It says they are indignant. They are ticked off. They are critical. They are mad that she's done this. And what, is, what do they say? They say what she has done is a This woman has wasted that jar of perfume on Jesus. And so they begin to rebuke her. They begin to chastise her. But here's the saddest part of this section of the story. See, not only are they demeaning this woman who who has come to offer her worship to Jesus, they're demeaning Jesus as well. These are his closest friends. This is supposed to be a safe place from the turmoil in Jerusalem. And these people, these followers of Christ, are demeaning Jesus. So what do they say? They say, listen, Jesus isn't worth that much. That's what they're like, like, listen, lady, Jesus is worth a lot, but he's not worth that much. They didn't believe he was worthy of such a sacrifice. They didn't believe he was worthy of such extravagant love and devotion. Like, just imagine if I treated Nicole that way. If I treated my wife that way and I said, you know what, baby, you're, like, you're worthy of maybe a birthday celebration, but not an anniversary celebration. Like, I'll give you 15 minutes a day, but other than that, that's not, you're not getting any more than that. Like, you know, like I'll take you to McDonald's, but not Cork and Plain. Like, how well is that going to go, folks? Some of you have tried it, I can tell. It's not going to go well. I'm probably going to be calling Stan asking for his couch. That's what, that's what they're doing. They're saying, Jesus, you're not worth that much. That's too extravagant, too much. But here's the reality. It is easy for us, even within the church, to fall into the crowd. To say, you know what, I want just enough of Jesus, but I don't want too much. Like, I don't want to be labeled as a fanatic. I don't want to be labeled as extreme. Like, I don't want my neighbors to think that I'm a kook. Because I love Jesus so much. Like, I want enough of Jesus, and I want to love Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be extreme about it. And here's the truth. The world, and even those within the church, will never have a problem with you and I having a moderate, measured devotion to Christ. No one's going to be bothered by that. No one's going to be bothered by us having a casual, comfortable, convenient Christianity. That's not going to bother anyone. People are just going to say, hey, listen, whatever you do, don't be a fanatic. Don't get crazy. Don't be a Jesus freak. As long as you do that, everything's going to be okay. I mean, think about it. If you choose to leave your career to go into ministry, people are going to look at you and say, what is your problem? Like, I remember when I was in college, because uh, God called me to be a pastor when I was a senior at the University of Georgia. And, and I had... Many of you know my story, and I was a marketing major, and I had two internships my senior year lined up, one with Chick-fil-A and one for Coca-Cola. So if you're in the Atlanta area, if you grew up in Atlanta, and you can do marketing for Coke or Chick-fil-A, pretty big deal. 
And so I had these two internships lined up. It was basically my choice. Choose whichever one you want. And then God had this church randomly call me, and I went and interviewed. I'm driving back to Athens from that interview, and God's like, this is what I want you to do for the rest of your life. I want you to quit those intern- qu- quit those internships. I'm like, God, really quit those internships? Uh, turn them down, and I want you to become a pastor and serve the local church for the rest of your life. Well, I called the two people I had the internship with. And I have to tell them, like, I'm turning down the internship. And they're like, why? Why aren't you coming? Well, God's called me to be a pastor. Uh, Oh. Now, Chick-fil-A probably would have been okay with it because they're the Christian chicken. Chick Coke, maybe not. But, but, But you could almost, like, you almost felt this tinge in their voice of, like, what a fool. Like, you're wasting your life. Like, Johnny, you're wasting your life tonight by getting ordained and choosing to become a pastor and following this call where you could do so much more, make so much more money. What kind of fool? But that's the, that's, what is that? That's, that's the crowd at this dinner table, at this dinner party. Like, if you choose to leave behind comfort and go live in the inner city, and live among the poor and the helpless and serve those that are underprivileged, listen, what, what's going to happen? People are going to look at you and say, you're impractical. What is your problem? I remember one of my college roommates moved to inner city Atlanta to work with FCA in baseball and work in the inner city. I, I remember people thinking, man, what is wrong with Brent? Hey, maybe he needs some medication. If you choose... To move away from family and friends and go head out on the mission field. To go live among a people that are unreached with the gospel. People are going to look at you and say, you are reckless. You are radical. You are imbalanced. You need some serious counseling. Paul puts it all in perspective in Galatians 1.10. He says, "For for am I now trying to win the favor of people? Or am I trying to win the favor of God? And then he goes on. Am I striving to please people? And I love this. He goes, if I were still striving to please people, I would not become a servant of Christ. Listen, if we're trying to please people, we're not going to become a servant of Christ. You can't do both. One's going to win over every time. And this crowd were kind of, they were, they're like, ah, we could serve the poor. We could do so much more. It's such a waste what she's done. And those at the party thought they knew the mind of Christ. They thought Jesus would have said, no, listen, don't break that flask on me. Give it to the poor. And we learn from John that Judas is the one that's leading all this. He's kind of the one that's stirring up the other disciples to to get after this woman because she's because of what she's done. But what does Jesus say? He says, what she has done is beautiful. What she has done is beautiful. So what has she done? Let's look at the fourth and final reaction that we see in this text of Jesus, and that is the wholehearted devotion of this woman. The wholehearted devotion. Look at verse 3 again. And while he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask 
and she poured it over his head. Let's skip down to verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone after they've criticized her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a what? Beautiful, noble thing for me. You'll always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Folks, this woman is a model for you and I to emulate. Her name has become synonymous with devotion and worship. Now, in Mark's gospel, she's unnamed, but in John's gospel, he names her. And this woman is Mary of Bethany. And for those of you who don't know who Mary is, Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, the man Jesus rose from the grave. And three times in the gospel records, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's why she's a model to emulate. Every opportunity she could get, she's like, Jesus, I just want to sit at your feet. I just want to learn from you. I just want to know you. I just want to be with you. Every time she would get close to Je- every time she could, she would get close to Jesus and she would sit at his feet. Listen, if you're if you're an elementary school kid here this morning or listening, this is a model for you to follow. You want to know what to follow? Look at G- look at Mary. She would go and sit at the feet of Jesus. She wanted to know Jesus. She wanted to learn from Jesus. Teenagers, you want to follow an influencer? Follow Mary's influence who would daily, or every opportunity, she would sit at the feet of Jesus. And you and I have that opportunity to do that every single day. To sit at His feet, to learn from Him, to know Him, to worship Him. Parents, if we want to be a model and an example for our kids, for our grandkids, for our great-grandkids, for generations to come, parents, sit at the feet of Jesus as often and as frequently as you can. That's what she does, and that's why she's such a model. That she's not, she's not inhibited in showing her love for Jesus openly and publicly. I mean, she could care less what anybody thinks. You got to think about this. This is a woman in first century Israel, and she's breaking a forty thousand dollar bottle of perfume and pouring it over Jesus' head. She wasn't even supposed to be at that table unless she was there serving food. But she doesn't care. She doesn't care about the cultural conventions. She doesn't care about what people will think. She's like, I am going to worship Jesus extravagantly as, as, I, as extravagantly as I want. I'm going to worship Jesus with everything that I have. I don't care what anybody thinks. She is such a great example of what happens when our hearts are enthralled with Jesus and completely and totally devoted to him. That's who she is. And Jesus makes three striking observations about her in this text. The first thing he says is she has done what she could. Now we can read that and say, well, she, she, she does, she's done what she could. But really what Jesus is saying is she has given all. She's done everything she could. She didn't hold anything back. He's showing that she devoted everything. I mean, you think about a $40,000 bottle of perfume, a year's wages, and what that could do for a poor woman in Palestine, in, in first century uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And she gave it all. This was probably a family heirloom that had been passed down 
from generation to generation to generation. And she's like, listen, I'm giving it all to Jesus. In other words, she rightly assessed the worth of Jesus. And she said, Jesus is far more worthy, far more valuable than anything this world has to offer. She wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said, it is a beautiful thing when we do that. Never a waste. Second thing I want you to see is that her act of extravagant love, it had prophetic and symbolic significance. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, she has anointed my body for burial. And you have to understand that, that over and over and over again, Jesus has been telling the twelve, telling his followers that he is going to Jerusalem to die. But none of them really believed it, except for Mary. Mary took his word to heart. She believed what he said was true. Did she understand all of it? I doubt it. But did she grasp the significance of it far more than the 12 apostles? 100% believe that she did. And so she has this symbolic and prophetic uh, emphasis when she does this for Jesus. But the third thing Jesus says, and I love this, he promises that her sacrifice, that her worship, will never be forgotten as long as the gospel is preached. The fact that we're talking about her right now is fulfillment of what Jesus said. The fact that we're sharing this story is validation that Jesus' words are always true. And so Jesus says, this woman, what she has done is beautiful. It is extravagant. It is, it is, it is a beautiful thing to be 100% devoted me and really what this what what question this text arises for all of us i think it's a question that we all have to answer and it is this how much is jesus worth to you how much is jesus worth to you and based on how you answer that will determine how you respond to jesus respond in hostility, you can respond to betrayal, you can respond in moderation, or you can respond in wholehearted devotion. But what is Jesus worth to you? And here's the reality. The only thing that is adequate is wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Jesus calls us to give everything with all that we are and all that we have. And he says, when we do that, it is precious in his sight. I think that's what Paul meant when he says, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of what God has done for you, because of his, his grace, his mercy towards you, what you're to do is you're to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And Paul says this, is your spiritual act of worship. Mary's act of worship was pouring this perfume over Jesus' head and anointing him. Our spiritual act of worship is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's what he requires. That's what he asks of us. And the reality, the truth is, 
I think we can oftentimes believe that and believe that we're to give wholehearted devotion to Jesus. But I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really difficult to get that belief out of my heart and out through my mouth. And sometimes it's really a challenge to get that belief that I'm to devote 100% my all to Jesus out of my heart and working through my hands. And sometimes it's really difficult to get that devotion to Jesus out of my heart and into my wallet. But here's what Jesus says. We cannot, must not, follow him half-heartedly. He doesn't ask for half of our devotion. He doesn't ask for half of our allegiance. He doesn't ask for half. He asks for all. And he says, come to me with all that you have. Come, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And when you do, Jesus says, it is going to be a beautiful act of devotion. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, let's ask ourselves, what is Jesus worth to you? Use this time to reflect on that question. Because I believe that is the ultimate question of this text. Just what is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth just a nod on Sundays and maybe a, a tip of the hat throughout the week and once or twice? Or is he worth all? And I know in preparation for this message, I had to examine my own heart and say, God, where, where am I holding back? What am I not doing? Where am I walking in moderation? Are there any areas in my life where I'm betraying you because I'm just unmindful of secret sin or just holding on to things I shouldn't hold on to? And, and I just encourage you right now to do the same. Just ask the Spirit to guide you, to lead you. Examine your own heart. And use this opportunity to say, Jesus, you are worth far more than anything I could ever give you. Jesus, you are infinitely worthy of all that I have and all that I am. And Jesus, I want to surrender everything. So ask the Spirit now to speak to you and say, what would you have of me? And then do it. Whatever he asks, whatever he tells you, obey. That means if you need to surrender your life to Jesus and become a follower of Christ, do that today. That means there's things that you're holding back and you need to confess and repent to him. Do that today. If you're kind of walking in moderation with him, kind of this comfortable Christianity, release that today and say, Jesus, whatever it takes, whatever you want, you can have. And give him your whole heart, your wholehearted devotion. And Jesus, we pray this because you're worthy. We ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Tell us what we need to do in order to wholeheartedly
follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.